Wake up, America. It's Morning Air with John Morales. Si, senor. Sarah Tafoya. And Glenn Leverins. This is Morning Air. On Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Wake up, America. It's Thursday, January 12, 2023. Good morning and welcome back to the final hour of Morning Air. I'm John Morales along with Glenn Leverins and our studio producer, Sarah Tafoya. Thanks so much for joining us wherever you may be across our great nation, across America. It's always a joy to be with you here on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. On Thursdays, uh, we always remember the institution of the Holy Eucharist on Holy Thursday by our Lord Jesus Christ. If you have a chance, try to visit the Blessed Sacrament at a church or at a chapel uh, sometime today or uh, sometime this week if you can. You can find us on Twitter at Morning Air Show as well as on Facebook. You can always shoot us an email, morningair at relevantradio.com. want to bring in our Morning Air team, Glenn and Sarah. Glenn, what are a few of the big stories that you are keeping an eye on that are making headlines here this hour? Another batch of classified documents found in the possession of uh, then-Vice President Joe Biden. Uh, no word on where exactly these were found. As, uh, that came to light uh, a couple days ago, that there was an office he used after his vice president term was up uh, that contained some documents, that office being cleaned out and moved. And uh, the White House claims to have uh, surprise at uh, the finding of these and, and reminiscent of uh, former President Trump uh, with a batch of Top secret documents found at Mar-a-Lago as well. Yeah, there's a lot of questions out there, and uh, even the mainstream media is asking questions. You know, first of all, uh, why has the White House been so vague uh, about uh, uh, these documents? They didn't disclose exactly where they found them. Uh, Why has it taken six years uh, for these uh, classified documents of uh, of then-Vice President Biden uh, to pop up? And uh, where is uh, uh, the equal justice under the law? Why is the uh, Attorney General uh, uh, Merritt Garland not uh, not going after this case in the in similar way as he did with President Trump? Uh, many, many questions uh, that are being asked uh, by the mainstream media and even uh, um, Democrats, who uh, some of them are asking these questions. On the other hand, many uh, are really downplaying it. Yeah, it's interesting, too, to find out maybe if we ever will the, the reasons why uh, these uh, folks have had these uh, classified documents, uh, if it's just a, a misfiling, a, a bad handling of important info, or uh, what the reason is. We, we don't know that in either case at this point, either. Well, I wonder, you know, when you leave office, you know, clean out your desk and stuff, and you, you think of some of the things that are memorable and things that kind of bring memories to you. Maybe these guys are doodlers, and they've been drawing, like, fun pictures on all these things, and so they want these mementos, and then, oh, I guess there was classified information on there, so maybe they're just, like, you know, embarrassed. They don't want everyone Oops. to see their doodles. I, I don't know. I guess we'll find out in the long run. We don't know yet. Yeah, I think uh, some uh, new rules or or laws need to to come into play when it comes uh, to how uh, former presidents uh, deal with these classified documents, because it's not just uh, Trump and Biden. I mean, this this goes back uh, to Bush and Clinton, and uh, I'm sure a lot of these guys have taken things home as mementos. 
Yeah, and it's possible that, you know, you write a note to your friend, you know, when you're in a boring meeting and you slide it over to the next guy. And so maybe there's some embarrassing conversations on the sidelines of these things. You know what? Keep a side paper and pen and then do it on that, guys. Don't do it on these classified documents. It's just poor form. All right. Uh, m- meanwhile, House Republicans uh, passed a bill to stop infanticide to protect babies who survive from abortions. What do we know about this bill, uh, Glenn? Well, one of the uh, first bills the Republican-controlled House passed. All the Republicans in the House voted for it, plus two Democrats. And now it heads on to the Senate with a Democratic majority there looking like it won't pass. Kind of amazing that uh, someone couldn't vote to help babies that uh, happen to be born alive after an abortion attempt on their life. Yeah, but uh, on, a, on a positive note, we know uh, where everybody stands on both sides of the aisle. Yeah, absolutely. Like I say, again, uh, this vote uh, got thumbs up from every single Republican in the House and, and two Democrats as well. Uh, uh, turning uh, to uh, the NFL, Bills, um, Damar Hamlin uh, has been discharged from a Buffalo hospital. This is outstanding uh, news. Uh, just nine days after he nearly died on the playing field and, and really captured the attention of, of our nation and even of the world. Absolutely great news, bringing the football world and uh, many others together as well in prayer. Like you said, it happened uh, uh, not even two weeks ago where he literally died on the field of cardiac arrest, brought back to life uh, with CPR. Uh, So many saw that and were shocked like crazy, but went to their knees in prayer. uh, And uh, you got a stadium full of folks doing the same, people around the country and world that were watching as well. Uh, He was able to be alert and watch his team play the following Sunday. And, uh, you know, he might be able to be there in person uh, for one of the playoff games coming up. I don't think anybody's going to be questioning uh, pr- praying on a football field anymore for, for some time. Uh, it was a tremendous example. Never forget that image of all of those NFL players from both sides on their knees uh, praying for DeMar. Yeah, some good thing coming out of a tragic situation. As always, really appreciate it, uh, Glenn and Sarah. Hey, sure thing, John. We, uh, we begin every hour here on Morning Air. We always start in prayer, always giving thanks to our Lord for all the many blessings through the intercession of the Mother of God, our Blessed Mother Mary. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady of Guadalupe, patroness of the Americas, patroness of the unborn and of relevant radio, pray for us. St. Joseph, patron of the Universal Church, pray for us. St. John Paul II, co-patron of Relevant Radio, pray for us. And every morning we always invoke the Holy Spirit when we pray, come Holy Spirit, come. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Now, it's been a week since we said goodbye to Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI in that historic requiem funeral mass in St. Peter's Square. He was laid to rest. Now people can go and visit the tomb of Benedict XVI buried in the crypt under St. Peter's Basilica in the, the former burial place of both uh, St. John Paul II and St. John the Twenty-Third. 
Why was Pope Benedict XVI considered one of the greatest intellectual leaders of the Catholic Church uh, that we have seen in many generations? Joining us uh, live from uh, the Dallas, Texas area is Professor Dan Burns, PhD, to discuss the legacy, writings, and speeches of Pope Benedict XVI. Dr. Dan Burns is an associate professor of politics at the University of Dallas and a Benedict XVI expert. Dr. Burns is also a member of the Neuer Schuler Kreis, uh, Joseph Ratzinger, Benedict XVI, uh, a German-based association of scholars dedicated to advancing Pope Benedict's intellectual legacy. Good morning, Professor Burns. Welcome to Morning Air. Thanks so much for joining us. It is outstanding to be with you. Oh, thanks so much for having me, John. I really appreciate it. Glenn, Sarah, thanks for arranging this. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, Professor, you had the blessing and the privilege of, of attending the funeral of uh, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI at the Vatican uh, last week in St. Peter's Square. Can you uh, share uh, with our listeners uh, what that experience was like for you personally? Uh, hard. I'm not sure how to how do you describe a funeral. It was a very strange thing. I was very grateful. You know, my, my president, Dr. Jonathan Sanford, uh, was willing to send me out. I had met Pope Benedict a couple times, once with my family and uh, once as part of another time as part of this group that you mentioned, um, seen him preach to uh, just the group of us after his retirement. Um, I think this—it's a strange thing, you know. It really brings home the sacrifices that that man made for the good of the church. Because normally you're at a funeral, and at the center of it is the family, the closest relatives, you know, the closest friends, and you know, he's—he was such a private man, and he, of course, had given up, you know, having a natural family of his own. Has uh, he's. Uh, there was no so the the, the more instead of the mourners, there was just his private secretary, who of course was a you know close friend after many years. But um, he he lived you know without the same kind of normal human connections that most of us have, and really instead dedicated his whole life to the service of the church. You know, it wasn't even he always loved Bavaria, where he was from. It wasn't in Bavaria. It wasn't in his native language. It was really a a, a, a memorable symbol, I think, of just how much he had given up of of the natural goods of this life in order to put himself completely at the disposal him and himself and his talents completely at the disposal of the church, and that's really the story of his life, I think. Uh, the images in that square are images I, I will never forget. I did get to see uh, most of, of the funeral uh, on television. Uh, the signs, uh, Santo Subito, uh, the the simple uh, uh, coffin of uh, Pope Benedict. Uh, you know, it was all so moving to see all those thousands and thousands of, of bishops, cardinals, and priests, and not to mention all the faithful in the square. Yeah, it was it was a crowded place. It was it was obviously exciting to just have so many people there feeling the same way uh, that I was, missing this this incredible leader of our church, um, and also yeah, I think the simplicity, both of the, of the music, which was very beautiful, and and of this that simple coffin, uh, that was very moving too. He really was uh, at his heart, I think, a simple man, a simple believer uh, with with the faith of a child, uh, although. Also, you know, the intellect of one of the greatest philosophers of the past thousand years. So it's an unusual combination, but uh, that's that's Benedict. Now, you also had uh, the privilege and the and the the blessing of meeting uh, Pope Benedict uh, several times uh, in person. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how he celebrated uh, Holy Mass? I thought it was so appropriate to have a beautiful uh, requiem mass in his honor for his funeral. Yeah, you know, I mean, his. his I think. 
I, I, without having known him that well, I think I can honest. I think I can accurately say that the music would have been to his taste. It was. It reflected the traditions of the church. This the long tradition of sacred music that he loved so much and wrote really eloquently about. Uh, I think what stuck stuck with me most um, from seeing him celebrate the mass was really like no other priest that I've seen. I know many good and holy priests, but it, he really stood out just how incredibly focused he was on the actions of the Mass, on the sacred liturgy, on the prayers. I remember so well at the very beginning when he says, you know, brethren, let us acknowledge our sins to prepare ourselves to worthily celebrate the sacred mysteries. And I, I could see on his face, like, you know what this man is doing right now? He's preparing himself to worthily celebrate the sacred mysteries. His whole attention is concentrated on this. As, you know, as, as the Second Vatican Council says, the source and summit, of our Christian life, you could see that he he lived that, that he felt that every time he celebrated Mass, and it was such a reminder. It was really, I mean, he's he's written books about the liturgy, which everybody should read, and he talks a lot about the importance of liturgy. But I think you could just see in his whole face and body how much he was living that out when he was, you know, participating in this privilege of celebrating the Mass that every Catholic priest has. It was it was it left a really deep impression on me. This is a man who actually believes everything, every word he says about what the Mass is. I really believe that uh, he tried to bring reverence uh, into uh, the yeah. new Mass after uh, Vatican II. Uh, he saw how reverence in many ways uh, had kind of gone away uh, in the decades after the Council, and yet, uh, you know, he really brought that sense of reverence uh, to Holy Mass. I think that's right, and as somebody who was there at the Council, in fact, a pretty pretty prominent uh, partaker of the Council in his capacity as a, as a th- uh, theological consultor there to, to Cardinal Fring, who's one of the most important uh, cardinals of the Council, um, you know, he knew what the intention of Vatican II was. It was to reawaken the liturgy, to make the faithful active participants. It had nothing to do with any attack on reverence. And he watched this just massive attack on reverence uh, follow after the Council, which was completely contrary to its intention. And I think he really, both with, both with you know, his greater allowance for the, the extra, what's now called the extraordinary form, and also with just the way that he, he practiced the ordinary form, which is, of course, what he normally celebrated. Um, he was really trying to set an example for all of us, I think, and trying to make it clear to us this is, this is this is what we this is our food as Catholics. This is this this encounter with God in the sacred liturgy um, that has to be the most important aspect of our lives, and we have to treat it that way if we're going to keep our faith alive. We're joined this morning by uh, Dr. Dan Burns, associate professor of politics at the University of Dallas and a Benedict XVI expert uh, professor. Uh, right uh, after the passing of the late Holy Father, the accolades uh, about him as a theologian were were flying from all over the place. I mean, people were describing him as one of the greatest uh, theologians of the 20th century, uh, maybe one of the greatest uh, since Thomas Aquinas. I mean, many, many accolades. What set him apart from other 20th century theologians? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's been, there was a, a period of great ferment, theological, uh, you know, reflection around the, before and after the Vatican Council, and he was part of that, and, and there's a lot of great minds in there, and I don't mean to downplay the others, but I really do think he stands out. I think there's a, there's a good reason. We're gonna, I think we're going to be talking about him hundreds of years from now, uh, when, when some of these other figures will have faded back uh, into, you know, in, in history. Um, I think that what drove him, and you see it all over his writings, uh, this, that line from St. Peter, always be ready to give a reason to anybody who asks you uh, why, why that hope is in you. Uh, that from, from, the, from, I think it's the first letter of St. Peter. Um, that first Peter 3.16. That's one of my favorites. <laughs> uh, that, I mean, since he was a college student, that was 
he says he was always been deeply moved by that. So that somebody asks you, why do you believe this? Why do you act this way? We owe to the honest questions of our non-Christian brothers and sisters, we owe answers, the best answers we can give. And if we don't have good answers, we need to think more about it, and we need to study more about it, we need to go back into the tradition of the Church uh, and reflect on it. And so I think it's that honesty and that respect, especially, you know, his respect for non-believers to say, we're not just going to dismiss these people. They have serious questions. We have serious questions as believers, all sorts of questions and, and, and you know, concerns about our faith come up all the time. We need to be honest with those. We need to be honest with our friends. We need to be honest with, our, uh, with ourselves and with God. And if we're not sure whether something is true, we need to look into it. And, and if we really don't, and if we really become convinced that the faith is not true, he was emphatic about this. We need to give it up. We need to not pretend. We need to not just do something, not just keep doing it because our parents told us to do it or something out of, out of comfort. We need to do it if it's true. And he thinks it is true. And he thinks that there are answers to every question raised by every skeptic uh, and every doubter throughout history. But to start with, the fundamental moral attitude has to be honesty. And I think that's what drove all of his theological research. And it, it really comes out so vividly. He's, he will pose... You know, somebody raises a doubt about the faith, he will express that doubt more clearly than they did. He will pose the question more sharply than the skeptic did, and then he'll answer it. And it, and it all comes, I think, from that deep, deep honesty, which I think, from what I know, I think he probably got from his parents, who were these extraordinary people, anti-Nazi uh, Germans in Bavaria during the war. And But anyways, that's, that's I think, it, it's all over practically every page of his writing. Um, Professor Burns, when I think of uh, Pope Benedict XVI, I think of his clarity as well. Yeah. He was very clear. Uh, in his teaching, in his uh, myriad of writings. I think that's right. I think, uh, you know, it goes together with the honesty. Is he, he always wanted, it was very important to him, you know, he's, of course, this incredible intellectual. He has a kind of anti-intellectual streak, which I admire. Uh, you know, obviously, I'm a professor myself, but uh, he really did not, you know, when he reads the Gospels and sees the references to the scribes and Pharisees, he hears academic theologians, which is pretty much what they, you know, something similar to what they were at the time, who uh, come up with a lot of theories to try to explain away what simple people believe. And he always, I think, especially in his role as head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, you know, really the kind of defender of the integrity of the faith uh, for, the, for the universal church, he always, I think, saw his role as defending the simple faith that the you know, farmers he grew up around in Bavaria had, that he saw in them every Sunday in Mass, that if theologians come up with some sort of theory to explain why you don't really have to believe that stuff, or it's all sort of a metaphor or something, that's what he wanted to fight against, because his, uh, he, he thinks, you know, if we don't all have the same simple faith as Christians, no matter how many, you know, books we've read and so on, if we're, if we're not united by that faith, uh, there's something wrong. That's not what the Church is supposed to be, and so I think that, that goes together with his clarity, is he always wanted to be able to explain why, you know, uh, he, after reading all the books and, and going into all the historical research and so on, why fundamentally the thing we believe is exactly the same thing that, we, that, that a, a seven-year-old says, uh, uh, you know, in the creed before getting his first communion. Uh, Professor Burns, uh, he also uh, spoke about uh, secularization, particularly uh, in, in, in the West, and the yeah. dictatorship of relativism. I mean, this is so uh, relevant <laughs> right now more than ever before. I think so. I think he—it's funny, you know, people had this phrase, people, his enemies had this phrase, that they called him God's Rottweiler. It, 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 it's completely unfair. I mean, such a kind and humble and mild-mannered man. Uh, especially when he was dealing with dissenting theologians. I mean, he always showed them complete academic respect, and, uh, you know, there was, there was nothing, nothing nasty or in any way mean-spirited about his inquiries. I will say the one time, if you want to see in his writings, where he does get a little angry, he shows some heat, it's when he's talking about secularism. It's when he's talking about the effort to push God out of the public square, 
to have an, to build an entire society on the assumption that God, if he exists, is completely irrelevant to our common lives, and that at most he's just some sort of private fantasy that a few of us like to indulge in the privacy of our homes and has no relevance to anything we do, any laws we make, uh, anything, we, anything we do together in society. He hated that. He hated secularism. He didn't, he didn't hate secularists. He, he argued with them very respectfully and, and cordially, and he had a great dialogue with Jürgen Habermas, the great German philosopher, right before he became pope. But he hated secularism because he saw what it was doing. He saw it as a, he saw it as a source of our drug problem uh, worldwide. He saw it as a source of terrorism and violence. He saw it as a source of loneliness, unhappiness, childlessness. He thought the effort, the effort to try to build a society, and he, you know, he read the philosophical tradition. It goes back to Francis Bacon and some 17th century philosophers. You see the, the roots of this. But uh, the effort to build a society without God, where God's light is shut out, uh, leads to human misery, and he he'd really again and again in in public, you know, to, at Westminster Hall in Great Britain, at the College de Bernardin in Paris. This is his pope, you know, at, at the German German Parliament, his own his own native land. In 2011, he gave these speeches to secular audiences, saying secular audiences saying we we have to we have to stop this effort to shut God out of the public life. There's, there's a reason Christian culture built Europe and made it what it is and made the West what it is. We cannot cut ourselves off from our own historical roots in this way. Uh, Professor Burns, uh, what about uh, Pope Benedict's uh, contribution to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, uh, working uh, in hand uh, with uh, uh, Pope John Paul II? Yeah, you know, that I was just reading. He, he said at the time, there was a big question after Vatican II. He says there were all sorts of people raising questions. You know, what does the Church still believe? Do we still think the same things we used to? And he says, I remember saying to Pope John Paul, uh, if we, if, if we are still the Church, if we still believe this, we have to be able to articulate what it is that we believe. And so there hadn't been, I think, a Roman Catechism in a long time, but he, I think, chaired, I don't know the details, but he had a lot to do with getting it together. Of course, working in a team, it's not like he wrote the whole thing himself, but I remember it, it comes again from that, I think, that same honesty I was talking about before, right? If, if we believe this, we have to be able to answer people's questions and say what it is we believe, and that's what I think, this is a great gift. I mean, the Catechism is, is fantastic for that. Uh, one more thing uh, about the funeral. We saw those signs for Santos Subito, uh, a saint now, but there was also calls uh, for making of Pope Benedict a doctor of the Church. What's your take? I think that he, I think that he will be a doctor of the Church eventually. I personally am not in favor of rushing these things. I mean, I think it's better to, you know, give it a couple, as long, you know, decades, whatever it is, time, time for people to digest his writings. I mean, the flood of emotions, obviously, after he dies, and I'm not in favor of rushing any of these decisions in, in the Church. But from what I know of the other doctors of the Church, from his writings, you know, his, his place in history, I'm, I'm strongly convinced that sooner or later, whether it's in my lifetime or not, he will be declared a doctor of the Church, and that he will more than deserve it. Professor Burns, uh, your final thoughts on how Pope Benedict XVI will be remembered in history. I think he will, above all, be remembered for his writings. I think his writings are a treasure. Everybody should read his Jesus books. Uh, every college, every Christian college student should lead, read his Introduction to Christianity. I mean, his spirit of the liturgy, faith, uh, truth and tolerance is just, his, his intellectual legacy is incredible. It would have been already most of it he wrote before being Pope, um, but if, if the fact that, he, that we all know him now as Pope will encourage people to read his writings, I think those are really the greatest uh, treasure he's left for the Church, and I think we're going to be digesting them for the next hundred years. Well, I so much uh, appreciate uh, you being with us, Professor Burns. Uh, thanks so much. 
Thank you so much for having me. And, and everybody send your kids to UD, best Catholic school in the country. I love it. Uh, professor, uh, Dr. Dan Burns, Associate Professor of Politics at the University of Dallas and a Benedict XVI expert. We need to take a short break when Morning Air continues. Our spiritual director, Father James Kabicki, will be with us to talk about ordinary time that we entered uh, just a few days ago and how we can try to keep the joy of the Christmas spirit with us all year around. Stay with us as Morning Air continues on uh, this uh, Thursday morning here on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. This is Morning Air, your home for faith, fun, and news in the morning. On Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. I hope you're having fun this morning. Welcome back to Morning Air. I'm John Morales along with Glenn and Sarah. Thanks so much uh, for joining us here on this Thursday on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. I love that bumper. Our power scripture from the Playbook of Life is from Colossians 3.17. The Apostle St. Paul writes, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. The Apostle St. Paul reminds us that it doesn't matter what you do for a living. If you're a lawyer, doctor, a mother, or even a professional athlete, whatever you do, if you do it for Jesus, if you do it for the Lord and for His glory, you are on the right track. You cannot go wrong. Remember to keep your work in the proper perspective. God first, your family second, and your vocation or profession third. You can sanctify your work. You can make your work have spiritual meaning if you do it for the Lord. And we always pray with great confidence from the Chapel of Divine Mercy, Jesus, I trust in you. Our number, if you want to be part of the conversation this morning, 888-914-9149, Now, as of this past Tuesday, we are back in ordinary time. You may have noticed the priests are wearing green again, but that doesn't mean that any day is ordinary. How can we keep the joy of the Christmas spirit with us all year round? Uh, how can we continue to encounter our Lord Jesus Christ every single day? Joining us live uh, is our spiritual director, Father James Kabicki, uh, to talk about ordinary time and uh, uh, some uh, practical uh, suggestions of how uh, to uh, live uh, the Christmas spirit uh, throughout the year. Uh, Father Kabicki is a Jesuit priest, a retreat director, and a spiritual director at the St. Francis de Sales Seminary in the Archdiocese of Milwaukee and a relevant radio contributor with his daily prayer reflections that you hear here on the air every day, as well, as well as being a longtime contributor to Morning Air. Good morning, Father Kabicki. Happy New Year. First time with you here in uh, 2023. Thanks so much uh, for joining us. It's a joy to be with you once again. Good morning, John, and happy Blessed New Year to you and all our listeners as well. It's always great to be with you, and I think it's a, a great topic, you know, as, as it's we have the longest Advent possible because Christmas fell on a Sunday, but then we have the shortest Christmas season possible. We went from uh, the Feast of the Epiphany last Sunday right into, on Monday, uh, a feast in honor of Jesus' baptism. And then on Tuesday, as you said, we went back to what we call ordinary time. And, you know, it's really a, a kind of a misnomer. It's called ordinary time, but 
basically it should be called ordered time or numbered time because basically uh, what it means is now from uh, the end of the Christmas season until the beginning of Lent, we have uh, numbered Sundays. And then after the Easter season, after Pentecost till Advent again, then we have more numbered Sundays and weeks of the year. And, you know, you're right. These are not ordinary days, ordinary uh, uh, Sundays, ordinary weeks, ordinary time, because every day is a gift from God, and he gives us this gift in order to encounter him every day and uh, to grow in our faith and in our love for our neighbor. So that's an extraordinary calling that we all have through baptism, and it's, I think, important for us not to consider any day as an ordinary day. Well, Father Kabicki, uh, you know, <laughs> you, you remind me that uh, the, the Christmas season did seem really short this year uh, for some reason. And it was kind of sad when I put away uh, my relevant radio uh, nativity scene uh, that uh, I won in a raffle. Uh, it was uh, the life-size nativity scene you could put out in front of your place. This was the first year we ever did that. And it made me sad to put it away. And I was thinking, maybe we should have followed uh, the Roman way of doing things, the way they do it in in uh, in, in Italy, uh, Ashton Rona was telling us that uh, in the churches, they, they keep all their Christmas stuff up until February 2nd there, uh, going by the old calendar, even though the rest of the world has taken down the Christmas trees and the nativity scenes. I agree with you, John. I, I really uh, think it would be a, a good idea for us to consider the Sundays, uh, to call them, as we used to, Sunday after Epiphany, the, you know, the first Sunday after Epiphany, second Sunday after Epiphany. And then as we come closer to the beginning of Lent, we they were called uh, Septuagesima Sunday and Sexagesima Sunday and Quinquagesima Sunday, basically uh, anticipating Lent. And uh, you're right, February 2nd, the Feast of the Presentation of Our Lord, was uh, considered the official end of the Christmas season. So I, I kind of I like that idea of having uh, a little more time as we do with Easter, the many weeks after Easter, to savor the mystery. But, you know, as you introduced our topic today, you, you know, you said, um, how do we keep the Christmas spirit alive throughout the year? And, you know, what we celebrate at Christmas is the fact that God took flesh and became one of us. And um, this is where I think we have a real good connection between Christmas and uh, the Eucharist and the sacrifice of the Mass. So Jesus took flesh in order to offer his life for us and he gives us himself every time we come to Mass. So I think one of the most natural ways of maintaining and, an, um, let's say, a spirit of Christmas or a uh, savoring the mystery of the incarnation of God becoming flesh is to go to Eucharistic adoration and adore our Lord in the flesh right there uh, on the altar, or to uh, try to go to a weekday Mass from time to time, maybe every day, if you're retired and have the opportunity, or if your particular parish has an early Mass before you go to work. Um, It's really a wonderful way to begin the day. It really, really is. Uh, in fact, I, I did not make it a New Year's resolution to go to uh, daily Mass because I've already been doing it uh, since uh, I, since the 90s when I worked in television at Fox. I, I, I started going to daily Mass way back when, and uh, it's been a habit that is kind of just a, a part of me. And I, I know for some folks it might be a little challenging, but uh, uh, I always find a way after this show, I find a way to get to a, a, a parish and go, I go to Mass. And, uh, you know, 
there's nothing more important, I believe, in life than spending time with our Lord, receiving Him in uh, the Holy Eucharist. You're, you're absolutely right, because, you know, the reason God created us was that we would be one with Him forever in the kingdom of heaven and part of the communion of saints. And uh, the Eucharist, uh, the daily Mass, uh, any Mass, is a way that He unites Himself to us right now uh, in, in the here and now. And also it's, it's a way that we grow in charity because we come together as God's people. Uh, we have the beginning of the communion of saints right there in our church. Um, and it may not feel like that, but we have to make an act of faith to say these, all of us here at mass are saints in the making. God is, is uh, making us into the saints that will be one with him forever in heaven and part of the communion of saints. And so uh, it, if we can keep that attitude uh, when we go to Mass and then leave Mass, it's it's an, another great way that we can keep Christmas alive, that Christmas spirit alive in our daily lives. Yeah, in fact, uh, the U.S. bishops on their website, uh, when talking about ordinary time, uh, they say that ordinary time is a time of conversion. This is uh, living the life of Christ. And so here, now that Christmas is over, it's a great opportunity uh, for us to to make some steps, to spend more time with the Lord, uh, to to get the daily Mass, if you can, uh, to go and visit the Blessed Sacrament in a chapel or a church, if you can. These are little things that we can do, and you don't have to do it all at once. You know, if you can't get to daily mass. I started going to mass other than on Sunday on Wednesdays back when I was a TV sports reporter. I would go on my days off. I was off on Wednesdays and Thursdays back then uh, down in in Houston and um I discovered hey, you go one other day and you get that extra uh, spiritual infusion of grace and then before you know it I was hooked and I started going every day. Yeah, that, that's a, a great tribute, you know, and uh, and I think you know, I think I would love to hear from our listeners if if any of them have that experience of of going to weekday mass and and just what that means to them uh, in in their daily lives. And even if you can't go, as as you said, you know, I I think there's uh, to have that desire to go, and that's what a spiritual communion is all about. I know, especially during the time of the pandemic, when many of our churches were closed and uh, people were not able to go to even Sunday Mass, that we were encouraged to make a spiritual communion. Basically, you know, to offer a prayer in which we say, Lord, I cannot go and meet you in the Eucharist um, and receive you, but I, I desire to receive you. Come to me spiritually. And I, I think keeping that desire alive in our hearts um, ultimately, you know, can lead to our um, desiring to uh, go more frequently to Mass during the week. Um, but also it's a way that we remember that we're made for that, for union with God. And it can help, as it were, color our entire day and, and help us live a life in which we are offering ourselves to God with Jesus as we do at every Mass. It's all about uh, uniting our hearts and our minds with our Lord Jesus Christ, whether you can do it in person at, uh, at Mass or uh, you can do it uh, spiritually with, through a spiritual communion. You know, uh, Father Kabiki, I haven't had a chance to talk to you uh, since uh, the death of our uh, beloved late Holy Father, uh, Pope Benedict XVI, uh, but uh, it was reported that his last words uh, on, uh, on earth, his last words before he died were, uh, Lord Jesus, I love you. What a 
great, great um, example for all of us. I mean, really, that in that those few words, it really summarizes what it's really all about. We're talking about a guy that was such a great theologian, and yet those simple, childlike words uh, speaks volumes. It really does, and um, you know, it was. I would say it's the culmination of a, a life well lived. You know that he he strove even as a, as a child and his first communion, and then throughout his life, it was a matter of wanting to love God more, wanting to love Jesus more, and and so with each day, that was a desire in his heart, and uh, so his his final breaths, his final words, are a culmination, I think, of a lifetime of striving to love Jesus in the Eucharist, but also in his neighbor and to serve the church. Because, you know, he he was a great example of obedience where he really wanted to retire and write books and and be a scholar. And uh, Pope St. John Paul II said, no, I really need you to be the cardinal prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. And so he he submitted himself in obedience to the Holy Father. And uh, that kind of humility and obedience, I think, uh, was a way that he lived out his love for Jesus. No question about it. Um, as uh, Father Kabicki was uh, saying, if you are able to go to Mass more than on Sundays, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can share what it's like for you to attend a weekday Mass. Uh, some some places are packed during the week. I, I, I've seen uh, weekday Masses that almost look like a Sunday Mass, um, especially at the old uh, St. Paul the Cross where our former studios used to be. Why would you uh, recommend going to daily Mass to others? We'd, again, would love to hear from you. Uh, these are just ways of keeping this joy of Christmas uh, going all year round. We're taking your calls for Father James Kabicki at 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. We're going to take a, a short uh, time out as we continue our conversation with Father Kabicki. Stay with us. There is much more to come on the other side. Start your day. This is Morning Air. When I say yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord, yes. Triple eight nine one four nine one four nine. Triple eight nine one four nine one four nine. We're talking about uh, keeping the joy of the Christmas spirit going all year round, especially. Uh, through the Holy Eucharist and Eucharistic adoration as we continue our uh, discussion this morning with our beloved spiritual director, Father James Kabicki. Father Kabicki, we do uh, have uh, a number of callers uh, standing by uh, to chime in. Uh, Obviously, this is a a very important topic that we're discussing here this morning. Wonderful. Uh, Father Kabicki, I, I want to uh, get your your take on uh, the fact that uh, obviously now for a while the, the bishops uh, have uh, called us uh, to this uh, special Eucharistic revival, this three-year period in which we're going to really focus on the Eucharist, which is exactly what we're doing here this morning. Right. 
And I, I think it's so important. And, and, you know, for the bishops, it was a matter of not only what we believe, because uh, our belief influences the fact whether or not we'll go to Mass on Sunday. So if we really believe how important the Eucharist is and the real presence of Jesus, we wouldn't miss Mass on Sunday. And so, you know, that's part of it. But also it's the idea of if we really believe in Jesus' presence in the Eucharist and we receive him, then that should affect the decisions we make, the choices we make, the way we live our daily lives. So I think it was that twofold uh, desire of the bishops to, one, uh, increase our faith and uh, in, in the Eucharist, what we believe about the celebration of the Mass, but then also how our celebration affects the way we live. Well, Father Kabicki, the Christmas season is over, but uh, our phone lines have lit up like a Christmas tree on this topic. Uh, Carolyn is joining us uh, from Massachusetts. Good morning, Carolyn. Welcome to Morning Air. You're on with Father Kabicki. Oh, good morning. Thank you so much for having me. I, I just want to say that if I don't get to daily Mass, my day just doesn't feel complete. And that started with me, too, as just a once-in-a-while thing. And the more I went, the more I needed to go, needed to go. And I missed Mass yesterday. I just wasn't on my game and wasn't feeling right. And I felt like my day never happened because I just, it wasn't complete. Even though I did my prayers, I just need to be able to receive Jesus. But if I can't get to Mass, the Amini Christi is one of the most beautiful prayers. I just love doing that prayer when I feel like I really need to receive Jesus into my soul, that prayer totally brings him to me. And MassTimes.org is one of the best, the best places to go to find a Mass at whatever time of the day you need one. I, I love that website, and I can't live without it, because no matter where I am, I can find a Mass. Wow, Carolyn, th- thank you so much. What a what a great uh, witness and a great suggestion for a prayer when we're not able to go to Mass. So thanks for your call. Really appreciate it, and I can totally relate. Uh, thanks again, Carolyn. Uh, we go to San Antonio. Cindy is standing by. Uh, Cindy, welcome uh, to Morning Air. Uh, you're on with Father Kabicki. Good morning, Father Kabicki. It's very nice to speak with you. Well, thank you. Good to hear you, Cindy. Um, The reason I'm calling is um, for a while there, several years back, my husband and I went to daily mass everywhere we went. And we, I always felt that I always had a better day, but it was kind of fun because if we went on vacation somewhere, we would just visit every different kind of, you know, whatever Roman Catholic church happened to be in the, town we were on vacation and i have seen every possible kind of mass even without a priest present where the host was already probably consecrated by a priest and the nuns were doing the mass but it's just the neatest thing and i remember uh new year's day at my grandmother's house in burbank california and i drove back to Monrovia to go to the little Catholic church in Doherty. It's like a the nuns operated it for the Catholic hospital there. I can't quite remember the name of it now. That hospital isn't there anymore, but that little chapel is. It's the the Carmelite nuns, I think, 
the mm-hmm. Saint Therese is my uh, patron saint, the the little the the rose, little flower. But anyway, that that's all I wanted to say. It's just like a better day. I don't know what I can't mm-hmm. describe it. I you know I'm not don't feel like I'm very articulate on yeah. this, but it's oh. just a better day. And hearing that the phones lit up like a Christmas tree. I feel like, okay, I'm not the only weirdo out there. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, Cindy, you're not at all. And, you know, what you describe, it's, it's great that, you know, looking on vacation, not as a vacation from the Lord, but with the Lord. And so uh, going to the masses in the different places. One little clarification, though, um, the, the, you can only have the celebration of the mass with a priest or a bishop, uh, someone who is ordained. The, if there's a deacon or a layperson or a religious woman, it's not called the mass. It would be a communion service. And you're right, the host that would be distributed at a communion service was consecrated previously at a celebration of the mass, either by a bishop or by a priest. So thanks for your call. Cindy. I really appreciate it. Thanks, uh, Cindy. Uh, we go uh, to Gloria, who's joining us from uh, Kakana, um, Wisconsin. Uh, good morning, Gloria. Good morning. Um, Father Kavicki, uh, my husband passed away five years ago, and in March of 1918, or 2018, <laughs> I'm going way back, um, in March of 2018, I did a Corsillo for the first time. I don't know why it took me that long, but I have been in daily Mass every day since. And the reason I go is because it's my goal to get to heaven, to be with my loved ones, and going to daily Mass keeps me on track to get to where mm-hmm. I, I want to end up. Right. And I, it, it, sets, it sets the tone for each day. Yeah. Well, and and Gloria, too, what um, what's beautiful that the Curcio led you to to weekday masses. But I I think what's also important in in what you're saying is, you know, when we gather for mass, we're gathered with a communion of saints. We're gathered with the uh, and so in the the Eucharistic prayer, we commemorate. Um, our Blessed Mother, St. Joseph, the Apostles, and we also remember those who have died. So with every Mass, there's there's a way that you uh, stay close uh, to your husband. Your husband is close to you, too, as as you, you pray in that way. So it's a, a great reminder to us that uh, we're not alone and that uh, when we go to Mass, we are part of that communion of saints. Thanks so much, uh, Gloria. Let's uh, squeeze in Rick, uh, who's calling from Pennsylvania. Good morning, Rick. Hello, Father. Uh, Hello. I, I wanted to uh, tell you how much daily Mass has been meant for me and my family. Uh, before I was married, I was having some problems, and I decided when I get married, I should try to start going to daily Mass. And it's made such a difference that I, I can't imagine I would encourage everyone to go. Plus, my wife, when I first met her, she was a, went to Mass only on Easter and Christmas, and now she loves to go to daily Mass, so we go together. I just want to say all the fruits and graces that come from daily Mass. 
Wow, Rick, thank you. And, and you know, it, again, it's, it's a great reminder that uh, the Mass, when we celebrate, it brings us together. And so uh, just how you and your wife have grown closer together uh, through that daily Mass, it's, it's a reminder that the grace that is there really helps people in their different vocations. So uh, thank you for that call, Rick. Thanks, Rick. Uh, let's try to squeeze in Christine from New Jersey. Christine, let's make it quick. Oh, good morning. Thank you so much. I just wanted to say it is an awesome gift that we are in the presence of Almighty God, and it only can happen through our priests. So thank you, Father Kavicki. And there's been a couple times we went, and there wasn't a priest there yet. He was running late, and it was just such a, like a sad feeling that we wouldn't be able to receive our Lord Okay, thank you. God bless and uh, for all you do. God bless you, oh, Christine. Th- yeah, thank you, Christine. Thank you. Father Kabeki, uh, St. Alphonsus Liguori said, even God himself could do nothing holier, better, or greater than the Mass. This is what it's all about. So much appreciate uh, your insights and your encouragement this morning. Oh, you're very welcome, and God bless you and all our listeners in this new year. Thanks so much. Uh, Father James Kabicki, uh, Retreat Director and Spiritual Director at the St. Francis de Sales Seminary in the Archdiocese of Milwaukee. And now it's time for yet another episode of Glenn Story Corner. A classic for you today, our story called The Touch of the Master's Hand. It's from Myra Brooks Welsh. T'was battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it scarcely worth his while to waste much time on the old violin, but he held it up with a smile. What am I bid, good folk, he cried, who'll start the bidding for me? A dollar, a dollar, now two, only two, two dollars, who'll make it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice, going for three, but no. From the room far back, a gray-haired man came forward and picked up the bow. Then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening up the strings, he played a melody, pure and sweet, as sweet as an angel sings. The music ceased, and the auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, What am I bid for the old violin, as he held it up with the bow? A thousand dollars, who'll make it two? Two, two thousand, who'll make it three? Three thousand once, and three thousand twice. Three thousand and gone, said he. The people cheered, but some exclaimed, We do not quite understand. What's changed its worth? And the answer came, Twas the touch of the master's hand. And many a man with soul out of tune and battered and scarred by sin is auctioned cheap by the thoughtless crowd, just like the old violin. But the master comes and the foolish crowd never can quite understand the worth of his soul and the change that is wrought by the touch of the master's hand. Isaiah 64, 8, But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Uh, Glenn, let's get off to a great start this year. Try to get to Daily Mass and pray the Family Rosary Across America with Father Rocky, 7 p.m. Central tonight and every night of the week here on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. That'll do it for this Thursday edition of Morning Air for Glenn Leverance, producers Sarah Tafoya, Gabby Burke, our entire Morning Air team. I'm John Morales. Thanks so much for joining us. Let your light shine before all. God bless America. We'll see you Friday on the next Morning Air. The Patrick Madrid Show is straight ahead. Okay.